The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. I think we should just start the show, and it, it'll come as a surprise to you that that, that <laughs> we are that we are recording two nights in a row, Paul. This is just they become the norm for us. It's I'm so happy to see you. It's just always so nice. You're just an area of constancy in an otherwise topsy turvy world. So I just know my nights are spent with Watto, <laughs> and what could be better? I miss it, you guys so much. <laughs> and yeah, that's that's Chris the Chew Man Chew. He's here. We also have with us Rahul Ganatra. Rahul, you want to say hi to the audience? Hello, everybody. And uh, you, when you first were on the show, you you promised that you you liked animal facts. We, if you wanted to throw one in as a surprise at any time tonight, uh, actually, I have an, a surprise animal fact for you, which I will. <laughs> Please, <I'm> so angry. <laughs> right before we got on air, I was just kind of browsing headlines, and there is a science article that they apparently from China they looked at uh, domesticated animals and catching COVID nineteen. Uh, and cats are very susceptible, as are ferrets. Dogs, not really that susceptible, and neither are birds. I think they said, like, chicken and stuff. So, uh, Paul, I'm now praying for Paul's cats. Thank you. So that is actually a really important observation, and the reason this virus is such a big deal is because it's a zoonotic virus. I mean, it's like, you know, opportunities for spillover into the human population, opportunities for genetic reassortment. It's the same reason influenza is such a big deal. Yeah. Right, but also kitties. <laughs> also kitties. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but I mean, you make a great point. I mean, also that, that thing that you said. And tigers are all over pop culture these days, so. <laughs> and people are tuning out by the second. Bye. <laughs> We are going to talk about COVID on this. We're going to talk about some reports from the front lines, what people are doing there, some, maybe some tips. Uh, we're also going to do some hot takes on articles and news stories that have been in the headlines about COVID. And then the main event is going to be Rahul teaching us some critical appraisal. We're also going to talk about this preprint world, which has suddenly come to the forefront, which I didn't even know existed. And Paul, I think I just completely forgot to tell people what we generally do on this show <laughs> and and give you your moment. Oh, well, that, that's okay. I feel like I had my moment earlier, but we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We usually bring expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Uh, Rahul is our critical appraisal expert. So I think we still have something like that. Otherwise, we're, you're stuck with us as the experts, which and, is And you're an expert on waters. cats. We already talked about cats. Yeah, a bit. like Legos and like there's other stuff too. <laughs> So, Paul, why don't you start us off with a pick of the week? Because I feel like right now, I mean, part of the reason we wanted to do this show is just to hang out with our colleagues virtually and talk about some things. So, Paul, why don't you tell people, like, how are you uh, escaping all this in your personal life? Yeah, it's it's there's been a dearth of movies that have moved me or, or TV shows. So I don't have a whole lot of pop culture to give you. I'm going to do something a little bit weird and actually recommend my pick of the week is going to be a, a tweet thread, which is. Sorry, but this is what you're getting from me. But it, it is from our, our friend of the show, uh, hero, Kimberly Manning. And, you know, she is an amazing storyteller in addition to obviously being recognized as an amazing clinician. But she she uses the format of Twitter in a way that is spectacular to actually sort of speak to the heart of matters. And it's, it's a very like I often her threads are very moving. But the one that she wrote was called Frontline-ish. 
um, which I think really spoke to my soul as a primary care doctor about how there's a little bit of survivor's guilt or sort of, I don't know if how you want to characterize it, where you're kind of in primary care, you're making phone calls, you're doing the best you can to kind of triage people, but it feels different than the people who are there intubating COVID patients and sort of, you know, taking care of people who are just sort of crashing. And she talks about watching someone running into a burning building and the differences between what frontline care actually means and sort of how primary care is also important. So she really spoke to a lot of feelings that I had but couldn't articulate. Um, and, and of course, she did manage to like 280 character tweets, which is just brilliant and infuriating all at the same time. So if you get a chance, uh, it's Kimberly Manning at Grady Doctor on Twitter, who's phenomenal. She's a follow anyway, but also that the tweet thread is entitled Frontline-ish, which I think is spectacular. Rahul, what do you have? My pick of the week is also a Twitter thread, but compared to Kimberly Manning, it is just not going to seem as cool <laughs> at all. So people may have seen this. Uh, I don't know if people are familiar with Steak Um. It is a brand of frozen meat products, I have learned. It is that Steak Um. That's what I was going to ask you. Of course. Yeah. Exactly. The, the very one. My mom uh, can make a mean cheesesteak with that stuff. Steakum produced a uh, a Twitter thread this week that is actually sort of a sophisticated commentary on interpretation of data and the importance of recognizing when something is anecdotal versus scientifically rigorous. Um, it was a uh, surprising move from a company that I can imagine focuses very hard on things, you know, totally unrelated to critical appraisal, but it's a really nice little thread, uh, kind of refreshing in this day and age. Um, I'm a vegetarian, so I can't really promote the the food or, or uh, speak to how it tastes, but I really like it. <laughs> I never would have guessed, by the way, that you said, it's a frozen meat product, I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> Out of Pennsylvania, apparently. Uh, that Maybe that's why I grew up on it. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, Chris, what about you? Um, I had a couple of different ones I was trying to decide on, but I think most recently there's a YouTube channel called some good news, which John Krasinski just started. He's got like just a handful of videos, but basically he's doing a really bad job of, as being a host, but his, he's basically just sharing a bunch of great news and, um, it's like really like heartwarming and just something that just can make you happy every day. And recently they, um, there was like this little girl who was trying to, she couldn't see Hamilton, the musical, because of um, the stay-at-home orders and, and where she's at. And so um, John Krasinski, who's you know from The Office and, and the Jack Ryan show on, on Netflix, he's married to Emily Blunt, who was also the new Mary Poppins, also with Lin-Manuel Miranda. So the Hamilton cast did this gigantic Zoom. I don't know how – like the entire cast was on there, and they sang, song, they sang songs from Hamilton for this little girl. And it's amazing and heartwarming and wonderful, so – that's my um, pick of the week. So let's move on to uh, what I guess we're going to call the frontline report. And we'll probably we'll have to make make a pun for that or something. But Paul Williams, I wanted to ask you, you've, you've kind of had some experience now in the outpatient world. And I know in the future, you'll be having some inpatient experience dealing with this pandemic. What what do you what have you learned? Is there anything that was surprising to you or that you really wanted to highlight for the audience? That's, yeah, it's a tough question to answer because it's, again, I feel, and I can't, like, you know, my, my baseline is feeling like a moron. Um, and I feel like the COVID has made me feel like a moron consistently because what we thought that we knew continues to change. So I think the thing that 
is consistent across my experiences, whether I've been in sort of occupational health COVID screening clinics or taking care of my own patients through telemedicine, which is sort of a new skill set for me. It's mostly um, tap dancing on quicksand. And so you find yourself, you know, it's so what are we doing today? And what am I supposed to do with this patient who's not an employee, but is seen in our practice by someone more than three years ago who is COVID negative, but is also a healthcare worker who maybe has one symptom in the contact. So you have these incredibly complicated algorithms that change on a daily basis and processes that also change. And so I think if anything else, the thing that I learned, and I can't say that I'm doing this as well as I would like, is that you really need to be nimble uh, during times like this. And you have to be flexible because policies and protocols change on literally a daily basis. And so staffing patterns, everything is completely different from one day to the next. And I think just because how we process this and what we do with these patients and what we know just continues to evolve at such a ridiculously um, a quick pace. So there's two things I want to talk about. The first is the ACP coronavirus resource uh, page, which is remarkable. It has educational material. It has resources for outpatient doctors, for inpatient doctors. It's It has links to a lot of really useful sites like University of Washington stuff. And one of the things that was on there, and this is the article I'm going to talk about, is uh, a link to an article from the BMJ. It's a practice guideline. Um, basically, it's a 10-minute consultation uh, from the March 25th uh, BMJ, COVID-19, a remote assessment in primary care. And it's basically a very practical um, real world step-by-step -step, how you would actually assess a patient either through telephone or through video if you actually have that capacity and sort of how to talk to your patients and how to set up the visit and sort of what to talk about. Where it gets a little bit tricky and where some of the online algorithms are helpful. So you assess for the frequent symptoms and what we're finding out more and more, at least in my anecdotal experience, is that we don't know what symptoms are yeah. slam dunk home runs. So who knows? It's, you know, there's now diarrheal illness that goes with it. The anosmia thing came out of left field. There is, you know, it's so it's, unfortunately, this is a pretty protean illness. And so I don't think we have great symptoms to ask for necessarily. So you're still, unfortunately, you're stuck using your clinical judgment, which is not my strong suit, unfortunately. And Paul, it seems like, yeah, I was going to ask about the breathlessness stuff. It seemed like that was like a key. Yeah. And I want to actually, I want to toss to you guys about this. So they talk about it specifically how to assess breathlessness. And thank you for mentioning that because that's probably, as, as Dr. Sachs mentioned, the most worrisome sign. If someone's having uh, trouble breathing, that could be a sign of acute decompensation, then, then you might have trubs. And so they talk about how to assess for breathlessness. One of the things they mentioned is the Roth score, which is the thing that I'm going to throw back to you guys. Is anyone actually using that in, in practice? And um, Chris, I saw you nod. Can you describe what it is to me? Because it's not something I use with any regularity. I've, I've only just read it recently, okay. so I don't know much about it. I just, I, the, the, the name rung a bell in my head and I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Ross. Okay. Okay. No, it's, it seemed like the type of thing you would know, which I mean is a compliment, but basically you have the patient count loudly and clearly in their native language and then use how far, how high a number they get or the duration of time that they count as a gauge of whether or not they might or might not be hypoxic. And it's not validated for this. Um, in fact, a lot of outpatient doctors don't use it, but it's it's one of the tools that might sort of add to the clinical picture in terms of if the patient can finish a sentence, um, if they say that their breathlessness is worse. And I think one of the important things to establish is how short of breath are they at baseline. So if you're like me, I have a lot of multimorbid patients with COPD and CHF who basically, you know, they're not walking half a block without getting short of breath anyway. And so is that markedly different for them or not is an important thing to establish. So anyway, I'm talking too long. I'm surprised I didn't get the gong sound, but there's a really great infographic in the paper. Um, it's really practical tips. So regardless of what your your practice algorithms are and how you actually triage these patients, it's just a way to sort of frame the phone call and kind of get a sense of what you're trying to get out of it. So I, I think it's a really helpful article from a really helpful resource from the ACP. One other thing about the ACP resource, what they're doing, and it's done early in the day, they they update each day. It'll say, here were the updates we made and to which section we made these updates. So you can kind of just scroll through and you can really get like what's going on with, with COVID for the week. And you can see all the updates over the past several days. 
So I would definitely recommend people check that out, like bookmark that and, and check it frequently. Uh, all right. Well, you mentioned the gong sound. So I don't know, Chris, if you want to actually make the gong sound. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all right. So Next ch- time, mid-sentence, please. Yeah. So Chu Man, uh, w- what is going on at the Cashlack Regional Ambulatory Practice in Pandemic World? I know you have had a lot there uh, on the outpatient side. I know you've done both inpatient and outpatient, but I think you've been setting up things a lot. Anything to add to what Paul was mentioning, like lessons learned or things you wanted to call out? Yeah. So, you know, we've been, uh, over in my, my area, we've been spending a lot of times with trying to figure out how residents play into all this, especially in the outpatient setting. And so, you know, where, um, Paul was just talking about how to assess for COVID-19 in, in sort of remote settings with telehealth, we've been trying to focus on how to, f- how to do telehealth just for all our other patients who don't have COVID-19 because people will, will continue to have acute issues, other URIs, rashes, and, CHF and hypertension and diabetes and trying to figure out how to manage that. And so that has been the bulk of a lot of my time spent the last couple of weeks um, with not only like rearranging resident clinics and getting them, you know, set up with telehealth and just teaching them how to do telehealth. And so um, I think one, one interesting thing that sort of came out of this is um, a couple of nights ago, um, a colleague of mine, Sean Corcoran had written this really nice document on sort of best practices in the outpatient environment right now. We can make sure we can share that in the show notes too. Even though these best practices can be easily said, sometimes can be definitely harder to put in practice. But things like you know, postpone routine testing. So, in sort of concrete sense, like does the person really need their annual lipid panel right now? Like, really? <laughs> so probably not. You know, number two, attempt to choose therapy that doesn't require monitoring. So, you know, very concrete example is, well, you need to start someone on blood pressure medicine. You know, they're telling you that their blood pressure is elevated you know, go with the calcium channel blocker instead of like the ACE inhibitor that you need to follow up a, a chem. Um, number three is, you know, you're probably just going to have to do a, a lot more empiric treatments. I have a lot of patients who come, you know, they may have URI symptoms for other reasons that they need to really come to the hospital, to, to the clinic to do that. A lot of that stuff could have been easily triaged and said, Hey, you know, take some Tylenol ibuprofen at home. Here's some things to make you feel, feel a little better and ride it out. So, you know, empiric treatments that in that way, or even antibiotics for well-known UTIs, uh, number four um, that he put on his list is with acute problems, you know, only order tests that you think will actually change management. So if if that someone presents with some sort of issue over a telehealth appointment, whether it's video or telephone, like, well, that do they really need to come in and get a test? Like, or should you just treat them? So one less one less touch that needs to happen within the healthcare setting. And the last is really just trying to keep people out from going to the ED or admission if, if necessary. Now, I think there there is an opposite on this. Like very recently, um, Rohan from Medlife Crisis had a very nice video talking about sort of the hidden victims of COVID-19. Um, he d- talked about, you know, as a cardiologist, he was seeing a lot less, you know, MIs in the hospital. But is it is it truly these people aren't having MIs because there's no pollution because people aren't driving or are these people waiting so long to uh, when they have their MI to finally present and all these other things. So, um, so those are just some of the things that I've, I've come across recently, but um, this beautiful document by Sean, um, I hopefully will, we'll make sure everyone can read that and sort of use some of these best practices as they're trying to develop their telehealth um, practices now. And I wanted to ask you and Paul are, for patients who don't have access to high-speed internet or don't have a smartphone, are you just doing telehealth just on a traditional phone call? Or is the, is the goal for the vast majority of patients to have a video visit? 
So it's uh, where I'm practicing. We're doing almost exclusively telephone. We're we're starting to to look at ways to do video options, and there are actually Doximity now has a new video feature that is in beta testing. Right. Um, that I don't think requires. Um, I, I I don't think you need any sort of special technology for that. And there's some there are certain um, websites that you can actually send the link to someone's phone. They can open it from there and do that. But we're we're still kind of figuring that stuff out. So by and large, we're we're using telephone calls more than video. I was just going to add that we we do a combination of both, but by and large, we also have a large um, population that doesn't have access to like high speed internet or even smartphones. So we do a lot of telephone calls. But um, there has been word recently that some insurers will actually start paying for telephone visits with on par, at least with some video visits and in person visits. So hopefully that will be very useful because you know I think we'll probably talk about this later, but. Um, it sort of discriminates against our patients who are unable to have access to some of these um, these other uh, luxuries that other people think take for granted. I wanted to talk about this convalescent plasma, which has been like just a really big topic in the news right now. And just kind of to start off, the reason why people are so interested in serology and also convalescent, pla- convalescent plasma, which I think kind of go together, is just because we want to know who's been exposed does that mean that they're at less risk for future exposure and can they return to work sooner? And like who should be able to donate plasma for option number two, which is the treatment that we'll talk about next. And I think this, I I heard rumors about this, that there were these reports that people in China had already been reinfected, but there was a blog post that uh, Dr. Sachs recommended written by Bill Rodriguez uh, who I, looks like, at least looking at his LinkedIn, was a former ID fellow also at Brigham. And he mentioned that the reinfection stories don't hold weight as far as th- there's no not really good scientific evidence that there is reinfection. They were sort of saying that patients had, they were misinterpreting continued uh, real-time PCR positivity as reinfection. And that's definitely not the same thing. Right. So as of right now, uh, the hope is that uh, reinfection uh, sh- shouldn't occur and that when you do get infected, and this is based on the prior SARS and MERS experience, that most of those patients did have an antibody response within something like 10 days, but that it wasn't the kind of antibody response that persisted forever and ever because they followed some of these patients out for years. So it starts to wane uh, definitely after several months, but after several years, uh, they people might need a booster shot if we're in a vaccine situation in the future. And again, this is all like speculation right now. So, um, Rahul, there were there were a couple of there were two. There's one in the National Academy of Sciences with ten patients, and one in JAMA. I know you're familiar with the one in JAMA where they had these five critically ill patients on mechanical ventilation that got convalescent plasma. And what? What sort of conclusions, or I'm sure people are really excited that these patients all reportedly got better, uh, either stabilized or got better, and what? how would you caution people about inter- interpreting this evidence? Well, I am excited that this exists as a possibility, and it's really, really tantalizing. I mean, I so badly want there to be something that is going to work for these critically ill patients. Recognizing that we all want something that's going to work, I think we have to be really careful about interpreting case series. Um, It's all about how patients were selected to get these treatments um, and what the counterfactual is, what would have happened to the same patients had they not gotten those treatments. 
Um, we're unfortunately seeing this in a lot of the early literature um, on treatments for COVID-19, um, either small case series or um, prospective cohort studies that uh, don't have a randomized uh, allocation plan. Um, uh, so it's all really about the comparison group. And, you know, you're trying to estimate what would have happened had we not uh, done the intervention. So it's really remarkable that in this day and age, you know, case series of five and 10 patients are really uh, actually quite important, but these are really critical for generating hypotheses that should then be tested in uh, more rigorously designed clinical trials. T to me, what part of what d didn't, you know, I don't quite understand the science of is like, if this cytokine storm that happens in week two is what's causing the problem, how do the antibodies help that? Because it would seem to me the antibodies mainly would just help like neutralize the virus that's trying to infect the cell. So I don't quite understand it, but these patients were beyond the two-week point for the most part, and it's anecdotally seemed to get better, or at least in this case series seemed to get better. That observation is an, is an important one. I mean, that's the kind of hypothesis-generating observation you can make from a case series, because we don't really know a lot about the underlying biology of COVID-19 yet. Seeing patients who get this treatment earlier in the disease course you know, kind of informs something about the underlying disease biology. So maybe it's the case that they're getting the neutralizing antibodies before the train has left the station and they're sort of not critically ill yet or not as ill as patients who are later in their disease course. The only other thing I wanted to say about related to serology is that there was just on, there was the FDA just approved a, a qualitative test for IgG and IgM antibodies. It's a rapid test and, uh, I imagine it's going to be very limited availability, but the, I, I believe the goal will be for, for this wave or future waves to, to be able to test healthcare workers and just, I guess, roll it out to the general population and see who's going to be immune and who can donate plasma. Down in my neck of the woods, um, there's this company called Battelle, and they uh, recently developed this new way of um, decontaminating N95s. They're calling it the... Um, Critical care decontamination system, and it's actually a, a pretty amazing thing, you know. So they've actually been working on this for like half a decade, um, and the the whole system looks like like a large container box. But apparently, you know, so it recently got uh, FDA fast track approval um, right at the end of March, and this thing can decontaminate over eighty thousand masks per day per machine. And it's it's pretty amazing, and so that's actually online here in my neck of the woods. And apparently, they're shipping; they're trying to ship across the country so that we can figure out this N95 mass shortage. But I think this is uh, this is probably one of the most amazing things that I've heard recently. You know, as we as we know, there's been a lot of you know, even though there's been a lot of human toll and suffering that has been going on going on with with what's going on now. There's also been a lot, you can see these large leaps in um, technology and things that um, the sort of stress environment has caused. And uh, this is one of them. So that is really cool. Just get one of those in every city and just chuck a bunch of masks in there every day. Yeah. So <laughs> we have, uh, we, we have collection stations in my hospital and basically um, no one's allowed to wear like lipstick or facial makeup or anything else like that. And these N95s can't be really soiled in any other way. But if they're not soiled in any other way, then they're collected in these bins and they're, they're shipped off to Battelle so that they can be decontaminated and then redeployed. Holy cow. So that that's an emergency reserve. I imagine you're not digging into those until, are they already being used? No, for us, they're not being used, but we're definitely working on stocking up on our used ones now so that, um, 
Uh, we won't run into a shortage should the surge come. Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Vox and the New York Times articles that you wanted to highlight? There's three articles, and I'm not the first person to say this either, but you know, the coronavirus has clearly been a stress test on our health system, and it's really showing a lot of the ways in which the system has failed. Um or, or not performed as highly as we might expect. Maybe that's a kinder way to say it without sort of laying blame. There are two uh, New York Times pieces that came out. One actually just yesterday, there's an opinion piece from Dr. Letha Maybank, um, who is the chief health equity officer of the AMA, t- entitled The Pandemic's Missing Data, um, sort of pleading for people to release the racial and ethnic patterns of uh, pandemic victims. And so they talk about Milwaukee County. Blacks represent only a quarter of the population, but 45% of the coronavirus cases and 70% of deaths. And this has been reported. There's an article on Vox entitled COVID-19 is disproportionately taking black lives um, that quotes uh, Twitter hero and just all around neat person, uh, Ushe Blackstock. There's another New York Times piece from March um, entitled as coronavirus deepens inequality, inequality worsens its spread, which is a really thoughtful piece that I like a lot. And by the way, all these pieces are free right now because all the coronavirus content is free online. So you can actually just look them up. You don't need the, pres- the subscription. And it just talks about what what we've known um, is that a lot of our system has built in uh, structural racism and disparity. And we're actually seeing that. And it's being talked about very, very publicly now in terms of the consequences that we're seeing and how it's, it's hurting poorer populations and patients that have been sort of more traditionally marginalized are the ones who are suffering probably even more from this virus because they've sort of, they don't have access to just some of the fundamental health needs that I, I think um, sort of more privileged folks have. So it's, I think it's exciting and interesting that it's being talked about in a very public forum and sort of underlying and underscoring a problem that has been there the entire time, but has now been sort of brought into sharp relief by this this current pandemic. Rahul, the hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin stuff uh, was almost like a mission accomplished moment for Trump. Uh, yeah, this should be quick. So A plus <laughs> plus grade one A recommendation. <laughs> um, can you can you tell us a little bit like? What what is the story with hydroxychloroquine? Why are people so excited about it? And can you t- kind of tell us tell us what evidence exists right now? Sure, I'll try my best to summarize what I think is known about the topic and what I have learned from reading carefully the two trials that are currently available uh, on hydroxychloroquine use in humans. So there has already been in vitro data to suggest that hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine might have in vitro activity against SARS-CoV-2. And in fact, hydroxychloroquine has been shown to have a lot of immunomodulating effects in humans. And this is why it's used as a treatment for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. And it probably has in vitro activity against a whole bunch of viruses. But there has not so far been convincing human data that hydroxychloroquine has a role in treatment of viral infections in humans. This has been studied in influenza, and it has not been borne out to be effective. So based on the existence of this in vitro data, uh, a group of researchers in France uh, conducted and published uh, the results of a prospective cohort study uh, that essentially blew up and led to the whole kind of storm of media interest and uh, you know popular discussion, as we've heard before. Um, So I read that trial in some detail, and I'm happy to take you and our listeners through uh, my appraisal of it. And then as we wrap up talking about that, I'll tell you a little bit about a subsequent trial that was published uh, later in March uh, that is is actually a randomized controlled trial that I can uh, talk us through how that uh, advances our understanding of the potential use of hydroxychloroquine. I'd also like to shout out to the fact that 
you did two tutorials, uh, one on the hydroxychloroquine article and one on, lip, uh, what is it, lopinavir, ritonavir? Lopinavir, or, ritonavir. Lopinavir, ritonavir. And uh, both were excellent. And anytime you want to do those, I will read them. They they are great. I almost made the joke, but I didn't want to diminish your work. If you could do infinite chess next, that would be fantastic. <laughs> 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 but yeah, they're spectacular. Well, my close friends gave me the feedback about these that, hey, buddy, you produced a tutorial that's 29 tweets long on a platform that's intended for brevity. You got to make these shorter. So, <laughs> if, I, it's if I tried to do infinite jest, it would take infinitely long. <laughs> that's what the footnotes are for. Um, it's a very niche joke. Well, thank you. I, um, you know, I mean, like my, my goal though is everybody can learn how to critically appraise the literature. And in this day and age, this is more important than ever for people to feel like this is a skill set that's accessible to them. So if at the end of the day, people uh, can feel a little bit more uh, comfortable uh, making decisions about the literature, then we've succeeded. Um, okay, so let's talk about the French study. So the question that this study is addressing is, should we use hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin to treat COVID-19? So I will take you through how I read this paper. And the first thing to do in reading a paper is to basically get everybody on the same page with what are the facts? What do the data show? What was asked? What was not asked? And then we can talk about the strengths and weaknesses and the limitations and how to apply these results to the real world. So in the background of this study, the authors describe a little bit of the background I was telling you about, how hydroxychloroquine has antiviral activity against SARS-CoV-1. Um, it's already available in much of the world, and it already has a known side effect profile. And this was used for COVID-19 in China, but we don't yet have uh, data on clinical outcomes, or at least at the time this paper was published, we didn't have uh, data on clinical outcomes. So the question that they posed was, does hydroxychloroquine shorten the duration of viral shedding in patients with COVID-19? This was published in mid-March, and it was funded by the government of France. This was an open label, which means unblinded, uh, non-randomized clinical trial. And that is another way of saying a prospective cohort study. This was done in 42 patients who had PCR-confirmed COVID-19, all in France. Uh, 26 of them received hydroxychloroquine, and 16 received usual care. The intervention in this study was hydroxychloroquine 200 milligrams three times a day for 10 days with or without azithromycin. And this was given at the discretion of treating clinicians to prevent bacterial superinfection. And the control group in this study was just usual care, uh, which did not include hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin. So how was the study carried out? Well, hydroxychloroquine was basically offered to all patients at one study site. And patients who consented comprised the intervention group, patients who refused or were admitted at any of the other three study sites were the control group. The primary outcome was the percentage of patients with detectable viral shedding at day six. And I'll just reemphasize that the primary outcome in the paper was viral shedding on day six. Um, the secondary outcomes that were included uh, were some clinical things, time to normalization of temperature and respiratory rate, length of stay, and mortality. The duration of follow-up in the study was 14 days. Loss to follow-up in this study, 23% uh, of patients who were allocated to the hydroxychloroquine group um, were lost to follow-up compared with 0% of patients uh, who got usual care. So 
The primary outcome of this trial is shown in figure one, and that's that 88% of controls had detectable viral shedding at day six, compared with only 30% of people receiving hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin. And they further broke down those results to people receiving hydroxychloroquine alone versus with azithromycin. And of the six patients who got both drugs, 0% of them had detectable virus at day six. Of the 14 patients who got hydroxychloroquine alone, 43% of them had detectable virus at day six. So this suggested that the benefit uh, was strongest from the combination. So the authors conclude based on those results that hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin is associated with a reduction in viral shedding at day six in hospitalized patients with COVID-19 compared with usual care. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about how I think about appraising this study. But before I do that, are there any questions, uh, thoughts people have kind of based on getting all the data out there so everyone's on the same page? Do you want to clarify again, why did they add azithromycin as part of, part of their methods? Yeah. What the authors indicate in the manuscript is that azithromycin was allowed to be prescribed at the discretion of treating clinicians for the prevention of bacterial superinfection. So nothing to do with actually what they felt was causing um, infection with coronavirus. The decision to just kind of offer hydroxychloroquine and let people opt out, I find interesting. I don't think I can find a problem with it. I just find it a little bit weird. Is that typical? Well, Paul, no, that is not typical. (laughs) And actually, there is a problem with it, which somebody pointed out on Twitter, uh, who I am not going to be able to find their name uh, in time to mention them. But um, uh, there is a problem that that introduces, um, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So, okay, so the first place to start is, was this a positive trial or a negative trial? Um, a positive study or a negative study? So this, po- this study was positive, and by that I mean that it showed that the intervention was associated with some benefit. And in this case, it's that hydroxychloroquine was associated with a 58% reduction in the proportion of patients with any viral shedding at day six, okay? So now that we've put that benchmark up there, we got to think about what are the limitations that kind of threaten the validity of that conclusion? So the biggest problem for me is that the primary outcome in the manuscript is different from what was specified in the protocol. Initially, the authors were looking at shedding at days 1, 4, 7, and 14, and the primary outcome in the manuscript is only viral shedding at day 6. This might not seem like a big deal, um, but it's a huge deal because... (laughs) You have to ask the question, why is data not available for the planned duration of the study? And we have to wonder, I mean, could it be the case that, you know, the control patients, you know, also had a reduction in viral load that we're just not capturing? Um, And, you know, there's other important questions that others have asked on Twitter about the methods in which um, viral loads were measured, um, but I I won't go into that uh, here. So... That's a huge um, limitation. Another important limitation is that the lack of blinding and randomization are really serious threats to internal validity because they influence the allocation of patients in assessment of the outcome. And in this study, I think they're both likely to benefit, uh, excuse me, they're both likely to bias towards a benefit of hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin. And Paul, to your question about how they allocated people to the intervention versus the control group, you could imagine a scenario in which maybe people with less severe disease don't feel so bad and don't feel like they want to try an experimental drug. And maybe people with more severe disease are, you know, doing much worse. They might be, you know, feeling more desperate. They might be more likely to uh, consent to the treatment. 
So that is a, a source of allocation bias. If you allow participants to choose which group they belong to, um, and so that could introduce um, uh, uh, that could introduce uh, influences in the outcome that uh, in addition to the the study variable. Okay, so the other uh, limitation to talk about is there was differential loss to follow up. All the control patients were included in the study, but 23% of the hydroxychloroquine patients were not. And among those six patients who were not included, three of them were transferred to the ICU. One of them died, and one was discharged from the hospital. So uh, I failed to see how any of that is clinically relevant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who cares about clinical relevance? So. This problem is called attrition bias, and it's a really big deal if it happens differentially between the two groups. Um, this means that what the authors did was a per-protocol analysis or a version of a per-protocol analysis, meaning they only included patients who got the study drug and were available to be assessed in the way that they wanted. What they should have done was what's called an intention-to-treat analysis, where those patients are included and their outcomes are represented among the, the final report of what happened. Um, and then in, in addition, the six, among the six hydroxychloroquine patients who dropped out, the authors did report that four of them were still PCR positive at the time of dropout. So this is quite likely, I think, to bias the results towards a benefit of hydroxychloroquine if we're not counting four patients who were PCR positive at the end of the trial. And then as you mentioned in the very beginning, Matt, this primary endpoint is a surrogate endpoint. None of the clinical secondary endpoints that are specified in the protocol are reported. And this problem also has a name. It's called selective outcome reporting uh, or outcome reporting bias. And it just, it's just shocking to me that this, this is the study that did, uh, it, was it this study specifically that made hydroxychloroquine just like out of stock for patients with lupus that actually needed and are now at risk for flares because they're they're not having access to it? Or was it, there was mention that I read that there's been supposedly a bunch of unpublished data that's kind of slow to leave China and let us know like what actually happened in larger trials? That's a great question. This is the only, uh, or at the time I appraised this, this was the only published trial in humans that the average Joe like me could access. And I believe <laughs> that this was the only uh, trial that was kind of in the mainstream discussion about hydroxychloroquine. Now, you're absolutely wow. right about unpublished data. And, you know, surely investigators are communicating with each other about preliminary results before they get published. And that's good. Um, but to my knowledge, this really was the study that uh, led to the the run on hydroxychloroquine that we're seeing the effects of now. So it sounds like there is some other external factor that was not just this sort of niche, relatively <laughs> small study with some bias. It seems like there must have been something else that happened that really stirred up interest. I can't, I'm not going to have a rage stroke on air because that's probably not relevant to <laughs> the conversation. Sorry, Rahul. Carry no, your, your righteous <laughs> anger, Paul, is uh, really justified. I mean, this illustrates the importance of all of us trying our best to just read these things and help each other figure out what these results mean. I will add one caveat. Because of the really small size in short duration of this study and limited clinical assessment, I should say that if there are other real benefits of hydroxychloroquine or with or without azithromycin in COVID-19, it does not seem likely to me that this study would have identified them, okay? So this study really only answers a very narrow question or purports to answer a narrow question, which is about viral shedding.
as people are moving forward, waiting for our next episode, what what should they do with this preprint data? Can you just say a word or two about that? Sure. So the explosion of preprint data that this pandemic has fostered has been uh, really dizzying. It's made it hard for even people who are really interested in this to keep up with the literature. So the only thing I'll say uh, as a word of caution about preprint data is what that means is these are journal proofs that have been submitted to journals but have not yet undergone peer review. Um, there's a lot of benefits to making these things available to the public. It allows really rapid dissemination of, of important data in an outbreak, um, but that also carries the risks of um, you know, removing the one quality check that we have on scientific content, which is peer review. But I will say that peer review is by no means a panacea. It's not perfect. I'll note that this uh, hydroxychloroquine study was accepted in a peer-reviewed publication, and this, this is not a preprint. This is something that was published. So um, I'll just caution listeners, you know, uh, don't, don't be afraid of reading preprint studies, but um, be sure to check and see what happened to them. Were they ultimately published in journals? Were they rejected? Um, were, there, uh, were they published and then subsequently retracted? Um, to me, this just makes it all the more uh, uh, important that we learn how to do the critical appraisal of these studies and uh, help each other through it. Well, thank you, Rahul. I feel I feel like I'm learning. I'm learning each episode from you. We got to do these more often so that we can keep gaining these pearls from you. Because uh, as Paul mentioned already, uh, we used to just be like, so we read it, and uh, you know, this is they, they did some statistics, and here here's, <laughs> here's what they said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yada yada yada. <laughs> I need a new glossary from every different bias that you talked about today because I've already lost yeah. track. Um, can I say one more thing, Matt, about sure. the last study? And I and you can I don't know if this is going to fit in or not, but so I mentioned in the beginning that there, uh, you know, uh, hydroxychloroquine was used in China, but data from clinical outcomes were not yet available. Well, there is one randomized trial that has been published in English since this first paper was published. And this paper did suggest a benefit of hydroxychloroquine. And I'll put it all out on the table. I really want this to work. I want there to be an effective therapy for this disease. So that's my bias going in. That randomized trial included 62 patients, uh, one-to-one randomization, 31 got hydroxychloroquine, 31 got usual care. This study concluded um, that there was a roughly one-day reduction in the duration of fever and cough. Um, More patients who got hydroxychloroquine had improvement on their uh, chest CTs. Um, And this was assessed at five days. So that's a relatively short duration, um, a small number of patients. The study had a lot of problems. Power calculations are not provided, and there's a lot of sources of bias that I will go into uh, in Twitter subsequently uh, on Twitter. But um, I just, I I wouldn't be um, doing a a fair service to our listeners if I didn't acknowledge that, you know, further clinical trials are coming out uh, on these medications every day. And if people want to find the uh, most up-to-date information on clinical trials, just go to clinicaltrials.gov and type COVID in the search box. And a uh, search list will pop up showing you all recruiting and enrolling trials. And you can easily find the contact information of the principal investigators and, uh, and try and get patients enrolled. Paul, I think it's time for an outro. Sure. Did you know physical therapy versus glucocorticoid injections for osteoarthritis of the knee um, actually seem to show more benefit? (laughs) 
Yeah, we will be we will be doing regular content as well, Paul. We have some good stuff coming down the pike. We can cut that. <laughs> This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's, did that so fast. Yeah, no one, no one got the yummy there. Uh, we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. So please send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Sarah Phoebe Roberts, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. I've been Chris the Chew Man Chew. I've been Rahul Ganatra. This has been Sarah Phoebe Roberts. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And as always, thanks to Stuart for composing our theme music that you're hearing now and to the inimitable Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.